This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. I want to start with sort of two different pictures that I'll describe. Uh, the first picture comes from uh, this undebatable fact, of which I am not apologetic, which is I'm an inveterate PBS Masterpiece Theater watcher. I love that programming. I'm seeing some nods. I might have hit the demographic target on that one. One, a few different series that Kath and I would watch, uh, there was a commercial that always played. And this commercial actually really stuck with me. It was very well done. It's for Viking River Cruises. And it starts with a beautiful kind of Baroque piece of music. And it shows these amazing river cruises throughout Europe, down the Danube and other rivers, the Rhine. And you see these most amazing, like 73-year-old couples, 73 years old. And they're, they've got gray hair, but they have lots of it still. And it's silver, like silver foxes. Their health seems robust. They're so happy that they have enough retirement money. They can go do stuff like this. And they're with friends. who have probably been their best friends since they were in elementary school. And they're in a sun-soaked vineyard somewhere in South Italy. And they've got these beautiful glasses of wine. And they're sort of toasting them in a beautiful way. And they're kind of throwing their heads back and laughing. Like, man, I want that when I'm 73. <laughs> I'm just, I mean, I want that when I'm 54. It's this incredible picture of... Could that be the future? And it has really taken a place in my heart and my imagination for me. Let me give you another picture. This is an actual 73-year-old. He lives alone, never been married, had a life of constant trial, calamity. He's actually, there was an attempt to kill him one sequence of suffering after another. And even after all those years of suffering, after all that time when we might think he had put his suffering time in, his suffering account was full, and now he should certainly, if anyone, get a pass, he's told at the age of 73 that he's been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, it's a disease that's not unfamiliar to many of us, actually, in this congregation, a very debilitating disease. He accepts this diagnosis. And he goes on for the next 10 years to continue his life. And he says one of his most memorable things, among many memorable things this man would say, he says about himself, I believe the world needs a suffering pope. His name was Carol Votiwa, John Paul II. He wrote dozens upon dozens of masterful works of theology, including a piece that's quite familiar to some of us here, the theology of the body. I'd even consider him one of my heroes for his faithfulness to the gospel. Why is that image not the image that I default to when I think about what may be ahead for me? Uh, this is not a screed against a wonderful time and a beautiful sun soaked vineyard, honestly. I'm not against Viking river cruises. As a matter of fact, God sometimes gives gifts like that to us, beautiful times like that with friends or in beautiful places. Those would be gifts of the Lord. I don't want to come against that. But what I've identified as I've studied this passage of Scripture this week is that my default picture of, of where I want to be in my life and where I hope I'm going is one that involves no suffering, 
which is what that image for me so perfectly captures. But were I to align my thinking and my imagination with the teaching of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, and the teaching he gives that if you will come and follow me, you will take up your cross, you will take up my suffering, we will share suffering, that to follow Jesus is to follow him in a sharing of his sufferings, it would be more accurate to be aligned in terms of my imagination with that picture of John Paul II at 73 than of that lovely couple in the vineyard. Right? In this teaching in Mark 8, this is a very challenging teaching. Writers in the Bible sometimes talk about teaching meat uh, rather than milk is one way that they put it when they teach certain things in the Bible. And this, this is a meat teaching. Hear this in the right way amidst our easily offended era. Uh, this is not for Bible vegetarians, okay? It's really meaty. Here's what Jesus is teaching. If you would come and follow me, you will share in my sufferings, in your own sufferings that will come. I chose the image of John Paul II in part because one of the deep sufferings that many of us experience in a socioeconomic reality where we are protected from many sufferings due to a stable infrastructure and and remarkable health care and remarkable opportunity. There are some sufferings, though, that nothing can prevent, and certainly one of those that we have known as a church family is the suffering of Parkinson's or, or the suffering of other autoimmune diseases or the suffering of cancer or the suffering of debilitating maladies that will just not go away. That, indeed, that's a suffering that many of us have tasted. But, of course, that is not the expanse of the suffering. There's the suffering of interpersonal relationship. There's, there's the suffering of your own, perhaps, mental illness or mental disabilities. There's the suffering of so many kinds that no matter how remarkable and such a remarkable prosperous time, we cannot escape. And Jesus teaches us that indeed that is part of following him. And he wants to create a tension, if you will, between the image of the couple in the vineyard and the image of John Paul II suffering. And he wants to create a dissonance and a tension for us in that reality. He wants to say, do not be, during this Lent, and the second Sunday of Lent, when the church has given us this teaching in Mark chapter 8, She's given it to us in her wisdom. This is the time when we begin to deal with how and where and, and in what ways has my Christianity been utterly shaped by the things of men, but utterly shaped by a, an American cultural experience wherein I can be promised that if I do the right things and eat the right foods and walk in the right way, I will not suffer. Even in my Christianity, if I follow Jesus and I, I, I load up faithfulness and I load up things, there'll be a quid pro quo and I will not have to suffer someday. And in this moment, we have this tension where Jesus wants to say, that is not true. That is not my way. That is not your way. I want to expose the things of man that have been polluting your thinking about your life now or your life in the future. And I want to bring you to the things of God. I want to fill your imagination with what your life as a Jesus follower will truly be like. I don't want you to be shocked by it. I don't want you to be taken aback by the fact that suffering will visit you and will visit those that you love dearly. I want you to be ready. Turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 8. Here we understand the following Jesus. 
is following him in the sharing of his sufferings. This is part two, if you will, of what I preached a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 1 about following Jesus. We share his suffering, verses 31 to 32. We shrink back to follow forward. We shrink back to follow forward, verse 33. We'll focus on 31 to 33, with a little bit in 34 and 35. And he began to teach them. Okay, what happened right before that, right? So look at your Bible. What happens right before that, of course, is the great moment, Caesarea Philippi moment, for those of you who know the Bible, where Peter, the developing leader of the disciple band, responds to Jesus who says, who do you say that I am? Peter says in verse 29, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the victor. You are the liberator. You are the one that we have waited for and been taught about for centuries. You are the one. Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him, and then he teaches them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, and then rise again. Okay, what you have right there, by the way, in that little verse there is the kernel, is the heartbeat of the gospel. If you're not clear about what is the gospel, what is the good news, and I want everyone at Resurrection to be very clear about the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus suffered, he was rejected, He died, and he rose again. And in doing so, he is Messiah. He has rescued us and liberated us from the power of death. And indeed, he has given us a way through the inevitable reality of suffering. That's the gospel. It's right there given to you. You can underline that, hold that, memorize that, this Lent. And in that gospel, he then extends it to say, you, I who will live this way and die this way, you too will do so. You will share in this. The phrase sharing and suffering is not used by Jesus here. Instead, he says, if you will come and follow me. Notice how it changed from Mark 1, right? Mark 1 was come and follow me. It's an imperative. Come and follow me. Now he says, if you will follow me. Okay, now you're following me. Now you're with me. Are you still with me? Right. So he's asking you, are, are you still with me? Now I want you to become fishers of men and women, yes. But I also want you to now come with me and take up your cross. And that is an if, which, which creates a needed response. Okay. Take up your cross. What is he saying? Okay, now, the atonement hasn't happened. Calvary hasn't happened. Jesus has not been crucified on the cross. So you're, these Jewish men are hearing this teaching, and you're understanding the Messiah has come. You're thinking liberator. You're thinking freedom. You're very likely applying this immediately to, to Roman occupation, Roman rule, freedom from Roman rule. You're thinking the crosses will finally go away. The crosses that dot the landscapes wherein people are executed by Roman rule will finally go away. Jesus has come to take away the crosses. Oh, what a relief. And then he says... Take up your cross. Wait, 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 wait. But that's the symbol of Roman oppression. You're saying I take it on? You're not taking it away? That's exactly what he's saying. Ooh, can you feel the tension? Can you guys feel the things of God, things of men, tension that's right there? What are you promising, Jesus? Well, I'm saying take up your cross. I'm saying understand from the Scriptures what it means that I am Messiah. You will share in my suffering. You will take up your cross. This phrase then gets used 
in at least three different places by New Testament writers. Paul will use it twice. Peter will use it once. By the way, Mark the Gospel is very likely Peter's Gospel, which is to say that Peter influenced Mark in the writing of this Gospel, which is all the more amazing that Peter gave him the incomplete story. He, he knew it was out there already. In Philippians, hear this in just Philippians chapter 3. This is one example. Verse 10, the Apostle Paul says this about taking up our cross. He says, that I may know Jesus. Now you can't say that you don't know what it means to know him. You want to know him? If you come and follow me, I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Do you not hunger for the power of the resurrection of God? Do you not hunger for that? How desperate we are for the resurrection of Jesus, for the power of the resurrection, for the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to inhabit us also, Paul says in Romans. If you would know him and the power of the resurrection and may share in his sufferings, Paul twins them together in a beautiful theological moment, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the call to share in his sufferings. Suffering is so isolating. Okay, first of all, just suffering is a misery. It, it's physical misery. It's a mental misery. It's an emotional misery. And when you suffer, you rightly feel at one level nobody understands it. Even those closest to you can't know exactly what it's like to wake up in the morning like you do. Or to be up in the middle of the night like you are. They can't know it to, to feel what you feel. It is isolating, which is why Jesus says, you have to do this with me. Your suffering will crush you unless you share your sufferings with me. Share them with me. I want to share them with you. As we share his suffering, we share his acceptance of suffering. Okay, let me teach on this some. This is a really important thing to understand when suffering comes or when you have somebody dear to you that's suffering. We share Jesus' acceptance of suffering. Where is that? I think it's here, verse 32. And this is Mark's, now Mark's commenting. He's kind of teaching you about Jesus' teaching. And he said this plainly. That's more than description. I think that's teaching. It's didactic. He said this plainly, which is to say what? He, it's unadorned. It actually has an unemphatic grammatical construction. It's just, this is what's true. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. I will rise again in three days. It's an acceptance. This is what the Father has asked of me. And so I will obey him. And I will do this. I am not saying that we don't seek to get out of suffering through the care of others or medical care or prayer, that we don't seek healing. We absolutely do. We have to do two things at one time. We seek those things, and yet we accept the reality as it is in our life at that point. We have to do two things at once. It's very hard. It's very difficult. Here's one of the most difficult things about this, is that when suffering comes, and it's not only isolating, we can often find ourselves offended by our suffering. 
Let me read to you uh, from someone that Catherine and I are reading closely right now. It's Amy, Amy Carmichael, British missionary to India, turn of the 20th century. She's a missionary writer. She's a theologian. She tells a story about a young girl named Jewel. Uh, Amy's main ministry with her team was going into uh, pagan temples and rescuing even infant girls up to um, adult women who had been sold into these temples. They'd been kidnapped into these temples where the most horrific things would happen as part of the temple rites to these young girls, even infants, up to adults. It's horrific. And Amy's team was going in and rescuing. They rescued Jewel. She was the first one they rescued. They rescued her out. But then the courts came against it. The mother who had sold her for money came against them, and they were seeking to bring Jewel back into the temple. So Jewel had to escape. Jewel had already suffered immensely. She would suffer much more in this escape. And Amy takes Jewel, and she says this to Jewel. She says, Jewel, promise me, whatever happens, by his grace, you will never be offended in him. You'll never be offended by God. I've never thought of that. Have you? But I'm often offended by God now that she described it. Oh, I find my suffering offensive. Why are you doing this? How could you do this? I find other sufferings offensive. As a pastor, I get so angry about how people suffer on their behalf. What are you doing? Why would you do that to this person? Why would you not relieve their suffering, God? It's offensive to me. I'm scandalized by the suffering. And if I get offended, I then move myself into greater isolation. I don't share the sufferings of Christ. I actually isolate myself from Christ, and I move into nurturing an offense against God. The suffering is such a shock. You see how Peter's offended? Look, look with me in your Bible. Jesus says this plainly, and what does Peter do? He takes him aside. Okay, so maybe he'd heard Jesus teach a teaching we see in Matthew 18 where Jesus says, if, you've, if somebody's offended you, take them aside. So Peter's like, oh, I remember that teaching. So Peter's like, oh, man, this is going to be hard, but I'm right. Jesus is wrong. What am I going to do, right? It's like, so he's kind of like, hey, guys, you know, like trying to kind of protect Jesus. Sorry, just, just need a moment with Jesus. I'll be right back. Um, just got to sort him out a little bit. He's, he's tired. So he gets Jesus aside and he rebukes him. It's a very strong word in the original language. Rebukes him. Why? He's offended. This isn't the Messiah. This isn't liberation. How can you ever say that you're going to be suffering and, you're, and, and, and that you're going to be killed? And what are you talking about? He's offended by Jesus. He's offended by Jesus' use of the Scriptures. Be assured to be offended by the Scriptures is to be offended by Jesus. Peter knows his Scriptures. Jesus is referring to Daniel when he talks about himself as the Son of Man. He's rooting what he's saying in the Scriptures. He's referring to the reality of Isaiah chapter 53 of God's suffering servant. Jesus is not doing anything new in saying what's going to happen. He's clarifying it. He's specifying it. But this is all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And Peter's offended by Jesus. He's offended by the Bible. And he says, you know what? I need to take charge here. This is getting too thick. This is getting too intense. This is just too much. i got to take charge here. i got to sort Jesus out. And then it'll all be okay. And we'll get him back to where he used to be. But there's no going back. There's no going back. Jesus is going to the cross. 
You're just going to die a criminal's death. And Jesus is going to rise again in three days. There's no going back. Praise the Lord. Oh, I want to say the H word right now, and I don't mean hell. Right? There's no going back. Jesus has set his face like flint, the Bible says, to go to the cross. In three days, he says, I will rise again. If you share in his sufferings and you share in his acceptance of suffering and you work through and learn how not to be offended by God, you share in his rising. That's the promise. He says in Romans chapter 6, it's going to be baptism that you will go down into the waters of death and you'll be raised up with Jesus to new life. That the heart of this gospel proclamation is the reality of rising. It's the word of profound hope that in the midst of your suffering there will be risings and there will be an end to your suffering one day. Indeed, we have to take with great sobriety. It's three days, he says. You will wait three days. He will literally wait three days. But we will have three-day seasons that will seem interminable. But the promise of rising is absolutely there. It is a beautiful quote from Bishop Mule. Uh, Bishop Mule was an Anglican bishop, early 20th century, and he lost his wife and his daughter. And he said, I'm learning the way of the weaned child, which is to say, I'm, I'm learning the way of one who used to nurse but no longer can. I'm learning the way, he said, the weaned child, I'm learning the way of loss. And in that, he was finding a rising. How can we do this? I mean, just to teach it right now, you must think, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know if I believe in the rising, Stuart. I don't know if I believe it. Well, first of all, it takes time. Second of all, it needs to be learned. So if it's not immediately understandable, it's a learning. It's, it's a learning amidst the suffering. It takes testimony as well. There are so many testimonies among your brothers and sisters of those who are in significant suffering that believe in the resurrection all the same. There's a beautiful book written by one of our resurrection leaders, Kate Clark, called Where I End. It's a beautiful title where she gives testimony to a catastrophic accident that she had. She was diagnosed with a quadriplegic. She would not walk again. And in this story, she tells the story of how you're learning how to walk again, she says, both physically and spiritually. We must have testimonies like Kate's of the rising amidst the suffering. She writes this, those who are hidden in Jesus, though they suffer, will discover a more beautiful ending, or should I say beginning, than they could ever imagine. So Peter has rebuked him. He's been offended by his teaching. And let's look at what Jesus does together, okay? So verse 33. But turning, so this, that's figurative too. He's probably physically turning because he's looking to see the disciples, but he's turning from Peter's teaching. He's, he's moving from Peter's teaching. We don't know exactly what Peter said, but it was a rebuke of his messiahship, probably understood. But turning and seeing his, teach, his pupils, his students, his disciples, he rebukes Peter and says, get behind me. Okay, stop there. The word Satan becomes an oak tree, lets nothing else grow underneath it. And textually, it's important that we stop with get behind me first, then we'll deal with Satan. Get behind me. 
Here we see not only do we share his sufferings, but we shrink back. We get behind. We shrink back to follow forward. It's a very strong word. It's a very strong rebuke. It's corrective. It's confrontational. But hear this. It's consoling. Jesus can do both things at one time. He directly confronts the reality that Peter is stepping into, an error that Peter is stepping into. He rebukes that. But what is he saying? He's saying, Peter, get behind me. Follow me. It is so dangerous out in front of me. Your suffering, your trials, the calamities that will come in this crazy cosmos will crush you. Get behind me. You're safe there. Shrink back. Get behind me to follow forward. It's a pastoral word, you all. It's a, it's a confrontive word, and it's a pastoral word. Do you see how Jesus is loving him? Do you see the love and the compassion of Jesus? Our Jesus, do you know how he knows the reality of suffering? That he himself would come to the Garden of Gethsemane, he would say to his Father in heaven, is there any way? Is there any way I can be freed from this suffering? Is there any way you can remove this cup from me, Father, please? He's bleeding blood. He's crying. He's begging God, is there any way? Don't be ashamed if in your suffering you're saying, is there any way out of this? Don't be ashamed. Our Lord, without any cowardice whatsoever, stood before his father and said, please, please let me out. His father said, no. It's for this reason that I sent you. And our Lord, he accepted and he said, all right. Not my will, but your will be done. So that's who we're getting behind. That's who you're getting behind. That's who you're following. See how safe that is? How secure that is? This is why we have to evangelize you all. There's so much suffering and so much pain, and so much tumult in this world, and people aren't following behind Jesus. You think your life is hard, and it probably is very hard. We've got to call people to follow Jesus. Get behind me, he says. And here we see he speaks not only to the isolation of suffering, but he speaks to the need for following and leadership amidst suffering. When you're in suffering, you have no context. You've lost your way. It just fills your mind and your body. Oftentimes, you need somebody who will lead you through. Now the word Satan. All right. Now, it's unfortunate. I've done it several times. This is like a preacher's favorite punchline when we're preaching. If people know the Bible, we'll say, well, that's bad, but it isn't bad as get behind me, Satan. Ha, 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 ha. Right? It's like, that was really bad. So I've done it. I'll probably do it again. Just forget that I made this little comment now. Um, but obviously, there's nothing funny here. It's so extreme, we almost don't know where to put it in our cognitive, you know, sort of compartments. What's going on here? Well, here the things of God and the things of man are in their utter clash. Why would Jesus call Peter Satan here? I'm not totally sure. Um, I've studied this a long time. It's, it's, it's very intense and it's rather cryptic, but I think there's, I got some ideas as I've read other scholars and thought about this. Okay, first of all, we know that Satan, and the word Satan has to do with the word accusing, and that Satan's often called the accuser. So certainly one thing that's happening here is that Peter is accusing Jesus of basically false teaching. 
That that's, that, 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 that's a false word about Messiahship, Jesus. I have to rebuke you that strongly. So it's an accusation, and Jesus recognizes the accuser, and he's connecting that with accusation. We can also note as well then that there's a profound connection, and this is often made, is also made by Paul and another part of the scriptures, between false teaching and the demonic. So what happens in false teaching that is contrary to the revealed word of God is that the demonic spirits are activated in false teaching. So we have to be very careful how we understand the scriptures and reading and trusting those who teach the Bible because they enter into false teaching as they enter into demonic oppression. And Jesus is saying here, this is a false teaching. We don't know exactly what Peter said, but he rebuked Jesus' true teaching. This is a false teaching. I rebuke your rebuke. This is satanic. This is demonic. This is absolutely false. Indeed, Jesus very likely, and Deacon John, our theologian, helped remind me of this after the first service, that of course, Jesus is probably thinking very much of his third temptation in the wilderness. Father Brett preached that last week, where Satan is trying to get him to a place of power and glory without the cross. Oh, this is, here he comes again. First it was in the wilderness when I was hungry, but now it's even worse. As one of my most, most beloved spiritual sons, as somebody I'm totally invested in, it's Peter himself. He's right here next to me in the camp, living life together, and he's saying it. And Jesus is so clear about who he is. He's so clear about the Father's call in his life, he recognizes that and says, get behind me. Satan, this is Satan. We also have to go probably a step farther, which is to say that there was some capacity in which Satan, his demonic powers, are animating Peter. That Peter's under somebody else's control. I'm not saying that Peter was possessed, but I'm saying that Peter was certainly oppressed in such a profound way that Jesus actually makes an equivalence. Jesus uses names to make points. This is how profound this is. This is how confused this is. This is, this, this is how you have completely mixed up the things of God with the things of men, and I cannot let this stand. Because there's no going back. Because I have come to seek and save the lost. I have come to redeem the pervasiveness and profundity of suffering on this world. I've come to give you someone to share your sufferings with. I've come to accompany you through your sufferings, through your rejections. I've come to bring you to the reality of dying to self and being raised again in me. So share the sufferings of the Lord. He wants to share your sufferings. Bring them to him in this Lent. Shrink back so that you can follow and go forward. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.